0: So I'm going to invite us here and all of those who are at the north campus and the downtown campus and the south campus to, to bow in prayer as we seek the Lord's help. The reason, Father, from this text that you have left me alive this week to minister tonight is for the advancement and joy of the faith of your people. So I ask for the miracle to be wrought by your word that thousands of hearts would find more joy in Jesus, not in things, but in Jesus, because of what they hear, and I ask that the Holy Spirit would work this very deeply, and I can't help but say thank you, Lord, also. That there is a school here that so believes in what i'm about to preach called bethlehem college and seminary who has this little, little leaflet in the worship folder and so i ask that you would prosper this school that i love and believe in so much oh how we want there to be Hundreds and hundreds of men and women move through these schools, college and seminary, to advance the cause of this message. So come and work that now in these services, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series on the 30-year theological trademarks of Bethlehem and the trademark that we take up today is Christian hedonism. So let me say right out that Bethlehem has not been built on a slogan, hasn't been built on a label. The term Christian hedonism is found in none of our official documents. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the church covenant. It's not in the values booklet. It's not in the ten dimensions of church life. Nevertheless, some of us love this statement. It is catchy, and it's controversial, and it's not in the Bible, and therefore zero pressure on you to like it. Just because I do. (laughs) However, I will spend the next 45 minutes or so trying to persuade you from the Bible of a massive, pervasive truth in the Bible which some of us love to call Christian hedonism. Here's another prefatory remark. This has been a painful week at Bethlehem. We've lost two adults who are the sons and the daughters. So, Jack Ahern doesn't wake up on Tuesday morning, 20 years old. Tracy Brown, yesterday, soars away at 37 years old from one of our staff members, Melvin's daughter. We have a little baby. On the edge of eternity, two of them, but one in particular at Children's Hospital, now as I speak wondering, is that baby still alive? So I've asked myself, you want to preach on Christian hedonism this week? My whole heart says, more than ever! So you've got to get this now, that this is not a plaything for me. We're talking about death. I sat with those two families, one of them three hours ago, eager to say what I'm about to say in this week, at this moment. We're not playing games with Christian hedonism. It's the heart of my life. It's the heart of my ministry. I believe it's the heart of the Bible. Four points. Number one. I have to admit to a problem created by theological trademark number two. Two, three, four weeks ago, whenever it was. Number two in the outline. The solution to the problem created by message number two is Christian hedonism. Number three, C.S. Lewis and St. Paul provide the basis one from experience and the other from God's authoritative word for this truth called Christian hedonism, and fourth, it changes everything. And I've got 11 examples, so this is a tall order for one sermon. All my life, 11 illustrations, big problems being solved, glorious solutions being offered all in one sermon, so we need to get to work. Number one in that four-point outline, there was a problem created a few weeks ago when I said, why did God create the world? God created the world for the praise of the glory of his grace supremely manifest in the death of Jesus. And embedded into that statement of why God created the world is God's massive and pervasive self-exaltation and self-promotion, which a lot of people do not Like Oprah Winfrey walked away from historic Christianity at age 27 because she heard God is jealous for his glory, and it didn't sound loving to her. Brad Pitt walked away from his boyhood faith because somebody told him, God requires that you consider him best, and it sounded like an ego thing to him and on and on the list goes. Early C.S. Lewis, Eric Reese, Michael Prowse, all these people have borne witness. I'm out of here because God is self-seeking. God exalts himself. God is self-promoting. He said so three weeks ago in his sermon. He made it the main point. That's a problem. Here's the solution. This is point number two in the outline. Christian hedonism is the answer, is the solution to that problem. Here's what Christian hedonism says, I can give it to you in one sentence. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. That's the shortest summary of Christian hedonism we have. If it's true, there is no final conflict between your highest exhilaration and God's highest self-glorification. None. No tension, no conflict, if that's true. In fact, not only is there no conflict between your happiness and God's glory, but His glory shines brightly, the more happy you are if your happiness is in him. And since God is the source of greatest happiness, since God is the greatest treasure in the world, since God is in his glory, the most satisfying gift He could give us, therefore, when He exalts Himself, sustains His glory, spreads it in the world for our praise, He is loving us, He is kind to us, He is merciful to us, giving us what will make us most deeply and most permanently happy God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue. If you try to exalt yourself, you're not loving anybody. Why? Because you're distracting them from what will make them happy. God, you won't make them happy. You're quite unsatisfactory. God will make them happy. If you say, look at me, look at me, look at me, you distract them from what will save them, give them life, give them joy. But if God exalts himself, he's not distracting you. He's loving you. Come to me. Come to me. I'm everything you've ever wanted. Come to me be satisfied in me, enjoy me, treasure me. If you say that, you're an egomaniac. If God says it, he's love. That's the answer to Brad Pitt. That's the answer to Oprah Winfrey. That's the answer to the early C.S. Lewis and Eric Reese and Michael Proust and anybody you've ever met who stumbles over God's self-exaltation. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. God's design to pursue His glory in the world turns out to be an act of love, and your duty to glorify Him turns out to be the pursuit of your joy. Number three in the outline C.S. Lewis and St. Paul give the basis of this solution, the basis of Christian hedonism. I picked up a book by C.S. Lewis in Vroman's bookstore in 1968, the fall, and nothing has been the same ever since. First page of The Weight of Glory, and then later I opened his book, Reflections on the Psalms, page 93, and everything was settled. I'm going to read you that page. This is Lewis's answer to his own struggle. Of why God, in demanding that he be praised, was not like an old, vain woman seeking compliments. That was his phrase. It seemed when he read the Psalms where God was continually telling us to praise him, he said it just sounded like a, a vain old woman seeking compliments. And he had to get over that. Well, how did he get over it? He got over it with this page. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest And at the same time, most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks and the misfits and malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as when men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment." That's the most important sentence in here. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. End quote. Changed my life. I hope it made me a little less cranky. Cranks and misfits don't praise. They grumble. Grumble, 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 grumble. And healthy people, capacious people, they're just always seeing things worthy of praise. I hope. Well, there was. God's relentless command that you praise Him is a command that you not settle for anything. But a completed joy. Praise is not merely the expression of something you are enjoying, but it is the appointed consummation of it. And therefore, when God says, Don't settle for anything less of me then to praise me, he means bring your joy all the way up. Bring it all the way to fulfillment. Don't settle for 90% happiness. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. In demanding our praise, God is demanding the completion of our pleasure. That's C.S. Lewis arguing from experience, which has no authority at all. Now we will go to the book that if it says it, you better believe it. Okay? If it says it. So here we are in Philippians. The text was read. Open your Bibles. I'm going to point to words, phrases. I'm just trying to persuade you. This is not John Piper's kick. This is in the Bible. It's right at the heart of things and it changes everything so we're still on point 3 but it changes everything that's point 4 we're getting there so we're going to read verses 20 and 21 of Philippians chapter 1 this is a dying week at Bethlehem and this is a text about dying and living it is my eager expectation and hope you with me Philippians 1 it is my eager expectation and hope That I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be, the ESV says, honored. The word is cause to be seen as great. Magnified would be a good translation, but I'm okay with honored. Just know it means cause to be seen as great. I want with full courage, now as always, Christ to be seen as great in my body, whether by life or by death. I want Him to be seen as great when I live. I want Him to be seen as great when I die. For to me to live is Christ, and to die gain. Paul says the great passion of his life, and I hope it's yours, this is the text I preached on February 1980 when I candidated for pastoring at this church. This is my text. My eager expectation and hope now as always is that Christ would be seen to be great in my life, great in this pulpit, great in this church. It's my heartbeat for 32 plus years. Oh, make your name great, and when I die, may I die well, so that off of my death can be read, Christ is great, Christ is great. So that's his passion, I want Christ to be magnified, honored, seen as great. Whether I live or whether I die. Now, watch this. The relationship between verse 20 and verse 21 is the key to everything I have to say. How is Christ going to be magnified, going to be seen as great in your life? If that's your goal right now, if you're sharing with me how much of a failure you feel, like me, I'm not sure he's looking very great in my life. What might I do? What might I think? What might I feel? That's what this connection between verses 20 and 21 is about. So he's saying, I want him to be seen as great in my life and great in my death for, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now notice the word life. In verse 20, corresponds to the word live in verse 21. And the verb, the word death in verse 20, corresponds to die in verse 21. You could, if I were to die, I'd be drawing little circles around the one, little, little bridge, circle around the other, so I won't miss that. So he's, he's got this pair in front of him in my life. And in my death, what Christ magnified. Now I'm going to explain. I'm going to show how that happens. And then he's got death and life over here to explain how it happens. We've got to make the connections between how does this work? How do you, how do you get life to be a Christ exaltation and death to be a Christ exaltation? And he's explaining that. Look at my life. He's saying, for to me to live is Christ. What does he mean by that? So That's the explanation. If, if Christ is your life, to live is Christ, then Christ will be seen as great by people. What does he mean? And I'm glad he wrote this book. I love this book. It's just about my favorite book in the Bible. Not quite. Romans. But it's right up there because in chapter 3, I'm going to turn over, he tells us what he means, I think, by Christ is my life, to live is Christ. Verse 8 of chapter 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord so he's saying, Christ is more precious to me, he's more valuable to me, he's more satisfying to me, that all that life can give. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing. It surpasses. It's not that the other things are evil. I love Joe Rigney's sermon, but comparatively, as Joe said. Comparatively, surpassing worth, surpassing worth, Christ becomes His life. So, I think if we go back to chapter 1, verse 21, and we hear Him say, to me to live is Christ, that's what He means. He means, in my living, I am valuing and, and treasuring, esteeming, loving, being satisfied with Christ to such a degree that all the other things that would compete with him are as rubbish. That's what it is to make Christ look great in your living. There's a lifestyle that flows from that. A lot of choices are determined by that. A lot of attitudes are determined by that, and they become more or less visible. So Christ is most magnified in Paul's life when Paul, in his life, is most satisfied with Christ. Are you with me? Have you got that? That's the the basis of my Christian hedonism in life. It's even clearer with regard to death. So let's go to the death part. Chapter one, verse 20. He wants Christ to be magnified in his body by death. Now the connection with verse 21. Because to me to die is gain. So Christ is magnified in my dying somehow by my dying being experienced as gain. Why is it gain? Well, the answer is crystal clear in verse 23. That's why I would stake my life on these things. I don't think there's anything ambiguous about this thing. Verse 23, second half of the verse, my desire is to depart, die, and be with Christ. And if you said to Paul, isn't he with you now? He would say, of course, yes, gloriously with me now, but oh, so much more. Oh, so much better. Oh, so much more intimate. Oh, so many clouds removed, no longer through a glass, dimly with him, supercharged and beyond anything you can imagine. That's what he's after. Christ so the reason death is gain is because you get more of Jesus but you lose a lot you lose your family you lose your job you lose your dream retirement You're young. You might lose the dream of marriage. You lose your friends. You leave them behind. You lose, pick your favorite bodily pleasure eating, sex, exercise, whatever. You lose it. You lose it all. Tracy lost it. Jack lost it. You've got family members who lost you. And all they got. Was Christ, And what Paul is saying is, if that happens to you, if you lose everything this world now can offer, you leave your body in the grave, and your soul goes to be with Christ, if you lose all that and feel it and count it gain, Christ looks really beautiful in you. Really beautiful. There it is. I can't do any better. If that does not persuade you that Christ is most glorified in your life and in your death when he is treasured more than all that life can give and more than all that death can take, I don't know what else to say to you. To me, the case is closed. God is most glorified in me. Christ is most magnified in me when I am most satisfied in life and in death than I am in anything else in Christ. You know, for people with really sharp ears, (laughs) the solution to the problem from my second message, God created the world in order for His praise to abound, for His grace supremely manifest in the cross. You could already hear the answer, couldn't you? The answer to the problem is in the problem, for those who have ears to hear, because what I'm saying is he was seeking his praise in the fullest possible way at the very moment in history when you were getting the most help, right? Cross, cross. This is glorious, I love this message. (laughs) God upholds His glory in the cross while providing you forgiveness. God vindicates His own honor in the cross while securing your happiness. God magnifies His own worth in the cross by satisfying your soul. That's Christian hedonism. It's the essence of Christianity. The cross is the essence of Christianity. God magnifying, vindicating, upholding his glory while he pours out his just and holy wrath on his son, all the while saving his enemies so that they could enjoy him forever and not be incinerated. That's an awesome gospel. That will be. And it works on street corners, over lunches at Pizza Hut with your adult children that are walking away from Jesus. That's point number three, the basis of Christian hedonism, first in the experience of C.S. Lewis, and then in the word of Paul from Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Now, the rest of this sermon is application. This, if you believe this, if this takes a root in your life, it changes everything. And I'm going to show you 11 illustrations of what it changes. We've seen number one, it changes the way you experience death. It needed to be number one this week. If you want to make Christ look great in your dying, there's no big performance required. There's no big achievement for this helpless person with tubes everywhere in their face and throat. There's no heroic sacrifice to be made. There is simply a childlike laying yourself in the arms of the one who makes the loss of everything gain. That's not hard to do, except for sin. Just lay yourself in the arms of the one who died so that the loss of everything would be gain. That's, that's not hard. It's just impossible. For sinners who love things more than Jesus, humans, more than Jesus, the great human. That's number one, changes everything about death. Number two, Christian hedonism changes how we think about conversion. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. What is becoming a Christian? Becoming a Christian is not only believing truth, it's finding a treasure. That's what it means to become a Christian. You find the treasure. (laughs) And if you find the treasure that is worth your selling everything to have, it's the greatest treasure imaginable. So, have you found him? I'm not asking if you've gone to church, signed a card, prayed a prayer, believe doctrines. I'm saying, have you found him? Are you explosively ready to let it all go to have him? Or is he just marginal and everything in here is central? Then maybe you're not a Christian. To, to be converted is to find Christ as a treasure. Number three. It changes everything. Christian hedonism changes everything about the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6, 12. John 1, 12. John said, To as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God. So, believing is a receiving. Got that? To as many as received him, that is, who believed in his name. So, believing Jesus savingly, is a receiving of him, and I would just ask, receiving him as what? And I would say, everything he is, the most valuable treasure in the world. That's what it means to fight the fight of faith, namely to continually recognize, see, savor, receive. Jesus is more valuable. Jesus is more valuable, which to put it simply, the fight of faith is the fight for joy. I get up every morning and fight that fight. Every morning, that's my, that's my war. Am I wanting to look at Twitter before I look at Jesus? Sounds stupid. That's how stupid sin is. Every morning there's war in the Piper household. It's not against my family. It's against me and my old man that I have to reckon dead over and over again and pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on me. My eyes would be open. I would see and savor Christ as supreme. That's war. That's called the life of faith. Faith is seeing, savoring the supreme treasure of Christ. That's number three. Number four. Christian hedonism changes our combat with evil. Jeremiah 2.13. Here's the Christian hedonist definition of evil. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's evil? The suicidal preference for empty wells over the river of delights flowing from heaven, that's evil. So my battle against evil is not to constantly say, no, 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 bad, 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 bad. What? There's no power in that. (laughs) The power of the flesh coming at you, the power of the devil coming at you, and you're going to screw up your willpower and make that the victory? You're not. You're not. One thing will give you the victory. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, and faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. You've got to stoke that engine every morning so that the evils that are clawing at you lose their fangs. You can't have me. I've seen Jesus this morning. Lust, you can't have me. Greed, you can't have me. Fear of man, you can't have me. Bitterness and anger, you can't have me. I've seen Jesus this morning. The battle against evil is totally transformed by Christian Edenism. Number where am I? Five. Hell, you think about very differently. The way to get to heaven is to embrace Jesus as the source of your greatest joy. Therefore, hell is a place of suffering and of eternal unhappiness for people who refuse to be happy in the triune God. Hell is a place for people who refuse to be happy in the triune God. And so they get eternal unhappiness. Number six. Christian hedonism takes away or changes entirely how you understand self-denial. Oh, there is self-denial in the Christian life. If you think Christian hedonism rules out, self-denial, you're not paying attention. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, And follow me. You're going to follow Jesus? Got to deny yourself. Got to take up an electric chair, a noose, a lynching rope, and die with Jesus. I am crucified with Christ. Nobody can be a Christian without self denial. Only Christian hedonism now shows us the biblical truth that. You deny yourself the wealth of the world to have the wealth of being with Christ. You deny yourself the security and safety of the world to have the solid, secure fellowship of Jesus. You deny yourself the fame of the world to have your name written in the book of life. to enjoy God's approval, you deny yourself the short, unsatisfying, fleeting pleasures of Egypt in order to have the eternal reward of God in heaven. There is no such thing as ultimate self-denial. If you believed in ultimate self-denial, you'd be spitting in God's face as He offers Himself to you as pleasures forevermore. Self-denial is the cutting off of your hand as it reaches for non-God the gouging out of your eye as you attempt to savor what will kill you in the end, sin. Of course there's self-denial, but oh, there's no ultimate self-denial. Everything is yours, Christians, whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos or the world or life or death or anything, it's all yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. Just give it time. Like death would be a good stopping place for self-denial. And after that, never again. That's an awesome thought. Number seven, Christian hedonism changes everything about the way we handle our money. Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed, more happy to give than to receive 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't love your begrudging giving. Keep it, for goodness sakes. But... If you've learned from Christian hedonism that your joy in Jesus will expand as you let goods and kindred go for the cause of the kingdom, oh, make your day, let it go. Oh, what a difference in the life of a Christian hedonist. has heard the glorious sound, it is more blessed to give than to receive, and God loves a cheerful giver. He's just after his joy as he keeps his life simple and pours himself out for the needy. Number eight, Christian hedonism changes the way we do and think about corporate worship. God has been good to us in these years. Corporate worship is the collective act of a people glorifying God, making God look great by their voices and their prayers and and the hearing of the Word of God and the preaching of the truth of that God. Corporate worship is a collective making God look great. And God is most glorified in a corporate gathering when those people are more satisfied in God than anything else. Therefore, all these instrumentalists have one main task. Chuck and and Dan and Jason have one main task. Open the rivers of heaven and Piper, spread a banquet for this people. And when they are done drinking and eating, you better say to God, Ah, that's called praise, and it makes much of Him. None of this dutiful, come-to-give stuff. Uh, I want you to come starved to get God. Nothing glorifies God more in worship than a hungry people saying, feed me, Chuck, with your music and your lyrics. Feed me, John Jason, with your truth from God's holy word. Don't let me walk out of here hungry. I am so weak. I need food, feed me. And as it goes into your ear and into your heart and the Holy Spirit uses it, praises are ascending and God is being glorified by you being satisfied in Him. It changes everything about corporate worship. Number nine. Christian hedonism changes everything about disability and weakness and how you think about it. Stunningly, paradoxically, Jesus said to the thorn-pierced Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your painful weakness. Really? I'm inside Paul's head now. Really? This thorn that hurts so bad, this weakness I feel. You're telling me, Jesus, that in the making of your grace sufficient for me, in that disability, in that weakness, in that piercedness, your power is more manifest? Now, what conclusion would you draw if you were Paul, having said in Philippians 1.20, my eager expectation is that Christ would be magnified in my life. I want Christ to be magnified, and Jesus just told you, "My power is magnified in your weakness." What would you say? What would you respond? And I'll read you what he responded. He responded like a Christian hedonist, which is why I am one. I'm not telling him; he's telling me. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me." What a man! What a crazy man! What a crazy, contrary to everything man, called a Christian, called a Christian. Okay, you tell me that your power is going to look bigger in my suffering rather than my healing? I'll embrace it. I'll embrace it. That has taken such deep root in this church. The stories that come to me for the way you handle your suffering has brought me such deep, deep pastoral gratification. Thank you. Number 10, Christian hedonism changes the meaning of love. Paul said of the Macedonians this he said it to the Corinthians in 2nd Corinthians 8 2 in a severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part and then in verse 8 he calls that love the generosity that's overflowing. Now, listen, get those three phrases. In a severe test of affliction and in extreme poverty, their abundance of joy overflowed in love. That's all I live for, for you. That's all I want from you. I don't expect your afflictions to go away. I expect them to get worse. God promised more persecutions the more godly you are. I don't expect your life to get better. I expect you all to die, and most of you will die slow and painful. It's going to get worse, so I got no promises for you that life's going to get better. That's the affliction, and then in extreme poverty. This is not a prosperity church. Christian hedonism doesn't equal prosperity gospel. I hate the prosperity gospel. I love Christian hedonism. In in extreme poverty, okay, so now you got affliction and poverty. We're not a poor person in this room, probably, comparatively speaking. But if it were to come, would this happen? abundant joy, which can't be based on the absence of affliction and can't be based on the presence of money. Abundance of joy, where? In Jesus, is overflowing in love. God, do that. God, do that here. Do it here. Help me to love my neighbors more. Help me to love the lost more. Make my theology take root in my life more. I hope you don't feel spanked. I'm just really dealing with John Piper here. I'm the preacher, I'm gonna be called to account for obeying this more than any of you, right? At the judgment day, let not many of you become teachers because you would judge more strictly. You stood up in front of those people and gave them 11 ways this works, and here's what you did, boom, 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 boom. Scary thing to be a preacher. But if you could just get this, what an amazing, beautiful people you would be. So it changes the way we think about love, love. Here's my definition of love. Christian Hedonist definition of love. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. That's my definition of love. One more. It will be done. Number 11: It changes ministry. Christian Hedonism changes ministry. Your ministry, my ministry. mine in particular. Here's one of my favorite verses about ministry, 2 Corinthians one twenty-four. Paul talking, I'm talking, not that we lord it over your faith, can I apply it to you? Not that I lord it over your faith, Bethlehem, but we are workers with you for your joy. <laughs> Paul lived for the joy of his churches, and I live for your joy, and if I don't succeed, I'm sorry. But you know what I'm after, supreme satisfaction in Jesus. Nothing else above that. And that, so high, so full, that if God takes everything away, you call it gain. I'm done. Sum it up like this. That's why, that 2 Corinthians 1.24 that's why God created you, for your joy in him. And that's why Christ died for you, for your joy in him. That's why all the pastors at this church do what they do, for your joy in him. And why would God create you for joy in him? And why would Christ die for you to have joy in him? And why would we minister for you to have joy in him? God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. We're after the glory of God. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, there's my life. There's what I think the heart of the Bible is. That's one of the most important theological trademarks of this church, and I commend it now by Your grace to your people for their serious, not only reflection, but earnest, heart-crying prayer. That you would work this in us and take us down deep into Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.